Almighty God, creator of all that is and was and ever will be, creator of that which is seen and unseen, that which exists outside of time and space as we know it, and our times and our spaces. To you we come to give our honor and glory, to thank you for the countless blessings, for the unimagined effect of grace upon our lives. It must trouble you, Lord, at times to have witnessed the chaos that existed before you reigned on earth and created companions to reign with you. And then to hear those same companions who have rejected you complain because some things about their lives are ugly and unfair and cruel and chaotic. Lord, we ask your mercy and forgiveness for our impertinence. And we ask, Lord, that you remind us in our hearts that you have sent the ultimate solution to the ultimate problem which is death and separation from you. Or to put it another way, Lord, you've given us the solution to the problem of this being all there is, so we have to get the most out of it. And so, Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to save us and to show us a way of life that is filled with peace and joy, filled with hope and promise. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the Holy Spirit to help us reframe the things that we witness that trouble our spirits. We thank you that your spirit is bearing witness all the time to your glory in creation, if we'll just pay attention. And so, Lord, help us as we pray for the various needs and hopes and dreams that we have brought to you today to, free, to reframe them and to listen to your small but powerful voice, the voice that speaks creation from nothing, the voice that cries, come out to the dead and be still to the storm, the voice that will shout so that the whole world can hear it when you return to take us home. Hear us, O Lord when we ask that you help with the sickness and the dis-ease in our lives, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, relational, financial, religious, hear us, Lord, as we pray, so that our prayers would be reframed into expectations where our outcomes would serve you where if we are meant to suffer, then we would do so for your glory. If we are meant to courageously confront difficult situations, we would do so for your glory. And so on. Hear us, Lord. We want to be all that you have called us to be. We don't want to be mediocre or absentee in our faith, simply claiming the benefit of heaven when we die. Help us to be more. Help us to be bold in our 
in our requests from you. Like Abraham, let us plead for our nation, for our city, for our family, and negotiate with you from the confidence in your love and our faith in your might and power. Oh Lord, prayers like this could go on for a long time, and therefore, Lord, I ask that you take what's in our hearts and you process it with our spirits throughout the day. But for now, Lord, we ask that you hear us as we simply close with the words that you taught us to say that are such a perfect summary. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Coming up. So we're going to read today from the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 8. If you'd like to find that in your pew Bible, it's going to be near the end of the Bible, and it will be on page 1179, page 1179, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger man, uh, and younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, <clears throat> so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So having heard that passage, I want to ask you a question. Do you think the people in your household, an extended family, just know, do they know how you feel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And when you think about the answer to that question in your life, how does it make you feel? What are you feeling right now as you consider that question? The final verse in this reading is sobering, and it should be. Because if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Given the context of the previous passages... It seems like the apostle is more concerned with physical welfare, but it really comes down to the entire health of the members of your household. It is taking into consideration doing your spiritual duty. The assumption that exists throughout the passage is that it is a letter to believers, 
to those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And so it is implicit in the passage that you have already given your life over to obeying God's leadership in your life, the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, and therefore to not take care of your family physically and spiritually would make you worse than unbelievers because even unbelievers take care of their families. But you have more to offer them than the unbeliever. You have more than just food and shelter. You have more than just money and uh, a ride to everywhere they want to go. You have a faith to share with them and a responsibility to do so. James asked in his letter, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, in terms of our family relationships, this is true, too. The words of James seem to be a little hard to swallow because he's using a, a, a literary style called hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. And so it sounds a little violent, but what he's saying basically is, is if you don't get what you want, then you're more concerned about that than you are with helping others get what they want. And so this leads to strife and hardship in the family, in the community. Being like Christ is the key to happiness in your family relationships. Let's start with marriages, for example. Now, what I know about marriage, I've learned from my immersion into Scripture throughout the last four or five decades, really. And what I've learned is also informed by my failures and my successes in marriage. And here's what I've learned. If a husband is truly devoted to his wife's well-being and is determined to do whatever he can to accommodate her needs, her hopes, her dreams, her desires, then she doesn't need to worry about whether they're being met, which means she can devote herself entirely to meeting his needs his hopes, his dreams, and his desires. When we talk about trust in marital relationships, it usually never goes any further than trusting whether that person is going to cheat on you or not. But in reality, the trust of marriage is so much more than that. It's so much more than learning how to put the seat down, gentlemen. It's so much more, ladies, than teaching them how to behave and making sure that they understand that you don't want them to fix it, you just want them to listen, okay? It's so much more than that. Christian marriage is about loving each other as Christ loves the church. And in Christian marriage, that means that we sacrifice self for the sake of the other. And so to have a healthy Christian marriage means that you aren't so wrapped up in making sure that you always get what you want, as you are in making sure that your spouse gets what they want. And believing that your spouse is equally committed to that outcome and therefore is always striving to meet your needs. Now once this becomes apparent in a relationship and once that trust builds to the hope and, uh, and desire that is expressed in this message, it starts getting more and more natural with the passage of the years. Almost, it's almost like a symbiotic relationship. It's as, it's as though the partners in a marriage are now 
one being. That's funny because I think that's what scripture says marriage is, is that two would become one. And so when we think about being one with our spouse, we have to think about how the Lord Jesus is one with the Father and the Father with him. And that there's no step that Jesus took while he was on earth that wasn't watched over by the Father in heaven. And Jesus lived so that everything he did was pleasing to the Father in heaven. You want to have a strife-free marriage? Well, it'll take work. I've always marveled, you know, I'm married to the oldest of eight children, and so our marriage has witnessed the years of them going from being little children to growing up and becoming adults with marriages of their own. And when they were young and we would tell them that marriage was hard work, they would laugh and say, oh, that's silly. If you really love each other, it's not hard work. (laughs) They're all married now. I haven't taken a poll yet, but I can tell you that they treat me with a lot more respect now than they used to. It might be that they figured out I wasn't so wrong about some of those things as they thought when they were young. And what you all know is that in a healthy relationship and the marriage in the home of a believer is the number one relationship. And in that marriage, if your spouse doesn't know how you feel about Jesus, the Son of God, nobody else will either. They'll just see a performance or a pretense. How many people do you know who seem like the greatest human being on the planet until you have a long chat with their children or their spouse or their dog? I've always said, just as an aside, that if small children and your pets like me, I'm probably okay. They have a way of knowing, you know. If you accept Christ and you let him save you, then the work of transformation in you has already begun. And so the things that you think are impossible in your flesh are not impossible anymore. But have you embraced the possibilities? Have you opened your heart to the transformative power of the Spirit within you? And I will say again, there is no place more important for that transformation to be witnessed than in your house. It's when you are in the private places with the most intimate relationships of your life where the truth of who you are and who you are becoming is most readily recognized. Paul says to Timothy, who is the archetype of pastors, according to Scripture, he's Timothy is Paul's first charged pastor that he is trained and sent forth to take over the ministry. And he tells to this he tells this pastor that these people need to understand that if they're not living according to the precepts of Christ and the scriptures, as they've been informed by the Holy Spirit, then they're worse than unbelievers because at least unbelievers have an excuse They don't know what they don't know, but you do. And as their pastor, he says, you are to make sure that they know what they're supposed to know, which is why preaching is such a sacred thing, because you have to stand in front of a whole lot of people coming from a lot of different directions and tell them things that may be difficult for them to hear. But you say it to them because like Christ loves the church, so the pastor loves the congregation. 
And for love's sake, you will do what must be done in order to help the disciplines of the faith transform people's lives and help them become more than they ever imagined possible because of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. There's a story that Jesus, a, 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 a quote of Jesus would be a better way to put it that I want to read to you and then I want to flesh it out with you because now we're talking about our relationship with our parents, whether we're kids or whether we're adult parents and grandparents ourselves. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 to 13, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother surely must die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, which is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Strange passage, and I'm going to interpret it to you now because it's really powerful stuff. Basically, what Jesus is addressing is a tradition that existed among the religious where the children would not care for their parents by using their savings because they would declare their savings dedicated to God. So they would dedicate their savings account to God and then never break into it to help their aging parents in their time of trouble. And Jesus said, you call it Corbin and I call it, you know, some other C word. Jesus was telling them that their tradition was a violation of the law of God because the spirit of the law makes it clear that there is no place where your faith in God should be more evident than in your home. And so children, honor your mother and father. And if you are a grandparent yourself, but your parents are still living, honor those parents. This is the command of God. And you do this for the glory of God. You do this because if your parents have lived in the Christian way and treated you the way the precepts that we've just discussed imply, in other words, they've honored their marriage covenant in a way that honors Christ, if they've honored their parenting covenant in a way that honors Christ, then you should do the same. Now, I'm not dumb. I've been around. I've even lived a few of these things myself, and I can tell you that I know very well not all parents live according to Christ's leadership in their lives. Not all marriages are governed by Christian principle. I know that not all parenting is done in a way that honors God, nor has the child's relationship to the parent been what it should have been. That's because we've allowed the, the subtle but ever-present worldliness around us to creep into the traditions of Christianity instead of the heart of Christianity. And we've adopted a tradition that is a sort of hybrid of what we think Christians are supposed to do and what the world says we're supposed to do. Well, what I've learned about the world, and I've even met clergy who have this problem, is the world is very good at making excuses. The world is very good at justification. Well, we know this is wrong, but I'm going to give you a very logical reason why it's not wrong today. 
Well, then if there's no absolute truth, what point is there to trying to seek a center ground that you're looking to walk on? You know, if there's no absolute truth, then what point is there in life other than to do whatever you want until you die and then be glad you got as much as you could and had as much fun along the way? Living like a Christian means we deny the world. We deny our flesh. And we take up the cross of Jesus, which is both a place of suffering and a place of joy and new creation, resurrection, and eternal life. And so parents, do your children know how you feel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the risen Lord who's coming again? Children, do your parents know how you feel about Jesus Christ, the Lord? the Son of God who's coming again. I can't promise you that you will all have lived a life where your parents were as honorable as some, who glorified God as well as others. But that doesn't change you. As a pastor, I often have opportunities to speak one-on-one with people whose relationships are in trouble. I can't begin to tell you how many times people will come and ask to meet privately with me to talk about their relationship with their spouse or their children or some other work-related thing. And it always sounds a little bit like this when they talk. Well, if only he. I keep telling him, if she would just... I get so angry with her. This is what always happens. And I wonder if you, like me, have picked up on the the subtle overtone there. The problem is always not being able to get other people to do what you want them to do. If you have lived long enough, you will realize, as I have, that no matter how hard you try, you cannot change other people. I've been standing in pulpits like this one for 25 years trying to change people, and I really haven't witnessed any profound changes in people, but over time, I see change. And so I realized that this was never a mission to stand in pulpits and tell people why they should change, but rather to tell people truth in love and let them deal with it. And to change my expectations about you is to love you more. Because now I can stand in front of you and I can tell you whatever I think you need to know and I still love you. Whatever you do with it. And you'll keep coming to me, I hope, whenever you need to be fed because you know that I love you. Now isn't that even more true in the most intimate relationships of your life? This is an important relationship, but there's a space between you and me right now. In those intimate relationships with the people whose bodies you're touching right now because you sit that close to them. In those relationships, have you ever really been able to change the other person or have you adapted to who they are because you love them? And have they not in the same way adapted to you? Isn't that what I talked about in paragraph one? 
See, what Christ wants you to understand is, is that the only thing you can control is your relationship with God and how you live it out on earth. And the question remains the same. Do the people in your home know how much you love Jesus? Do they? Do they know that you would sacrifice anything for Jesus? Maybe not, because maybe you needed to sacrifice your pride in a household conflict to Jesus. Maybe they don't know because you needed to die to yourself for the sake of your loved ones because of Jesus. Maybe they don't know because you were more concerned about them and the way that they create pain and frustration in your life than you were about greater things. Now rest assured, if you come to see me to talk about a violent relationship that is hopelessly sick and toxic and destructive, I will not tell you to stick it out and suffer in a way that isn't in keeping with Scripture, because after all, the principle that is most important in Scripture is that God hates oppression, because there's no better expression of sin than oppression, and that's when you control other people's lives so that you always have what you want and they never get anything they need or want. God hates oppression. So I don't know where you are on the spectrum, but I can tell you this, loving Christ equals loving your family. In the famous love is passage from 1 Corinthians 13, often read at weddings, Paul lays out out for us what love is. He says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You know what would be interesting is if if we made a little report card with those qualities on it and gave it to our loved ones and said, go ahead, give me a report card. By the way, on the sermon notes, I made one. So, you know, uh, there are a limited number of paper copies out there. You have it on the app right in front of you if you're using the app. And you have it by way of an email link that I sent to you not once but twice on Friday. Open the second one if you want to see this. Score yourself on whether you're patient or let them score you on whether you're patient. Five being awesome one being leading, leaving much room for improvement. See, I, I know the family dynamics are complicated, and uh, I also know that parents are imperfect, pastors are imperfect. But I know that in a God-honoring life, we take into account what we cannot change. And then we live the precepts expressed, for example, by Paul, admonishing us to love Christ and to love others by being patient and kind, not being envious, not boasting, not proud, being respectful, not selfish, not angry, 
not resentful, hating evil, loving truth, protecting and trusting and hopeful and persevering. These are the things that we will do from within ourselves rather than trying so hard to get others to be what we want them to be or think they need to be. Relationships with children, parents, and spouses will change within days if a few of the parties in these relationships will embrace these truths. It happens that fast. If you let the Lord's truth guide your relationships, you will see improvements. But rest assured, this isn't easy. It's not the default state of mind for us. I want to leave you with this word from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. One thing is for sure. After doing this, your frame of reference about that person and the decisions you make about that person will change. I can tell you from my own experience that when I finally got tired of harboring resentment towards people and I realized that all I was really doing was keeping an account open that they didn't know they owed. I was trying to hold a debt against them they didn't even believe or know that they owed me. And I could have tried like crazy to get them to expect to, to, to accept responsibility for their uh, debt that they owed me, but it would never have worked out, and it only would have caused me to harbor even deeper resentment. The only way to get rid of the resentment and to see my whole, trans my whole life transformed was to forgive the debt. Say, I no longer hold this against you, Dad, Mom. I no longer hold this against you, child. I no longer hold this against you, spouse. I'm not even going to try to convince you that you, you owe me anything because this is how clean the slate is, is that we're not even going to speak of this anymore. You don't even have to know how much I think you owe me. You don't even have to agree that you owe me. I just cancel the debt, period. That's it. And then all of a sudden, your life is filled with such release you can't even imagine. Ask me how I know. I tried it. It works. And here's the unexpected thing. You will end up loving that person against whom you held resentment more than you ever thought possible. It's true. I have greater love now for the people that I held things against and forgave than I had before. And it's because now I see them in a new light. I see them as broken people. I see them as victims of their own circumstances and not people who sought to victimize me. And so I have grace for them. But I had to have the courage to wipe the slate, regardless of whether they had anything to do with it or not. I cannot emphasize that enough. Don't even think about going to them to tell them you've forgiven them. It'll only blow up in your face. If you go to them to tell them you've forgiven, forgiven them, then it's really about you, isn't it? See what a great person I am because now I have forgiven you for the thing you did. Rather, you just forgive them in your heart and let it go. 
And every time you look at them, you greet them with grace and love that was not there before you forgave them. They'll know. I promise you, ask me how I know. I tried it, and it works. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Burn the truths on the hearts of your people and let their lives be transformed forever, I pray. For his name's sake, amen. Amen.